Welcome to Context with Advanced Design. Context is a podcast space where laid-back conversations on design, life, and everything in between happen. In this show, we interview experts in our field, but also students, educators, and anyone who's part of the industrial design family. Thank you for tuning in, and here's today's episode. Welcome to another episode of Context with Advanced Design. My name is Hector Silva, and today we have the pleasure of hosting the, de- the Design Director of Industrial Design at Fuse Project. Welcome, William Stewart. Thank you so much for being here, Will. We really appreciate um, your presence in our podcast today. No, thank you. Pleasure to be here. A little bit about Will. Um, he is the, like I said, he's the Design Director of Industrial Design at Fuse Project, where he has worked there for about seven years across product, packaging, and accessory programs for clients in multiple categories. Clients that he has worked with include Western Digital, iRobot, Vodafone, Form Life, British Gas, August Smart, Home, just to name a few. And he has led the design teams on various projects through strategy and concept design to mass production. He has a deep knowledge in production processes for both hard and soft goods. And uh, that's just a little bit about Will. So very excited to have Will on our podcast and dive into a little bit about more about what he does and the awesome, awesome work that he's doing over at Fuse Project. Um, I feel like every time I turn into social media or my email or just the news, there's always something coming out of Fuse Project. Um, yeah, we're, we're pretty lucky to have had, uh, you know, a pretty consistent uh, cycle of launches during, especially during the pandemic. Um, we've been very lucky to have been able to keep the momentum going over the course of it. Um, and I think that's owed to, we had a lot of stuff bubbling away before, you know, everything got locked down. Um, we, and we also have a lot bubbling away now, but um, we were also have, we're, we're very lucky that we were able to, you know, continue with those projects and, and, and launch them and kind of also stagger them. Uh, they kind of were very luckily timed, sort of in a nice sequence um, as 2020 panned out. Yeah, I think um, the one thing that I, I see from a lot of the products that are, are being launched um, that Fuse Project has worked on, it almost seems like you guys were already thinking about working from home ages ago, just because of the products. Um, for example, you know, like you look at Form Life, and uh, for those who aren't aware what Form Life is, it's a pretty awesome at home. Um, device that allows you to exercise um, in the comfort of your own home. And it's like this mirror that's digitized and it has these different, uh, has an amazing kind of UI and it uses, um, you know, different training exercises. Um, But again, like this is something that I'm sure you guys were working on for, I don't know, a year to two years out and it's like perfect timing. Yeah, I mean, when the pandemic hit, we've been you know we've been working on that device for in advance of maybe four years or so so we have no idea um that it was going to be uh the timing was going to be so perfect and even when the pandemic hit we were still you know a little bit of a ways off of of launching it and we were like you know back back in april last year we thought oh we're only going to be in this situation for a couple of weeks we'll be back in the office next month it'll be totally fine yeah, uh, and we thought, ah, you know, that's bad timing. Everyone's like buying their at-home workout machines um, mm-hmm. right now, and we're kind of gonna like m- miss that that window. 
but you know here we are down the line and we're you know shipping imminently mm-hmm. and um you know even though even though the, the pandemic has had a lot of hardships um in in many many ways i think um it's helped to sort of grow and, and evolve a number of industries one of them being the at-home workout market um mm-hmm. because no one can work out in gyms or in uh, you know workout classes anymore i was i was an avid you know soul cycler went to barry's uh so as soon as we locked down um right at the beginning of the pandemic i kind of like missed an element of my life that mm-hmm. uh that i knew i couldn't have back so i needed some way of filling that gap and, and these workout devices really do fill that void so let's step back a little bit um before we dive more into some of the work that you do at fuse project let's dive into a little bit about will and let's talk about how you got to fuse project right um, where are you originally from and how did you end up in the Bay Area, one of the most competitive cities for design? Well, yeah, okay, we're going back a long way. Um, <laughs> so my, I, I, I grew up, starting at the right at the beginning, I, I grew up in a little town in the northwest of England called Nutsford in, in Cheshire. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I lived there until the age of eight, age of 18 um, when I went to Brunel University and I think I think I knew there was no point in time that I think I knew that I wanted to be a designer necessarily I had quite a creative upbringing um, my grandfather was a nuclear engineer at BNFL um, which was very technically and kind of logically focused but he also enjoyed, you know, painting and drawing and had a lot of creative outlets, which which influenced me a lot from a very, very early age. Um, and then my mother was a graphic designer. And so a combination of those two two influences kind of instilled in me inherently that I knew that I, I wanted to do something creative with my life. Um, and I think getting up towards college, uh, I, I had a feeling I wanted to be an architect. And from what I was told about uh, doing architecture, I, you know, you needed to do seven years of studying until you got your your certification. Uh, you need to be really good at maths and physics. So that was kind of what I ended up um, pursuing when I was uh, doing my A-levels. But it turned out that I was really bad at maths and couldn't, uh, <laughs> uh, not terrible, terrible, but, you know, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was good enough. My skills were good enough in that area to continue down the architecture route. So I kind of found product design as something which I saw as similar in the sense that you're kind of building something, uh, but just on a much, much kind of smaller scale. And uh, back during that time, you know, careers advice in the UK was not, was not great. And they even gave you um software which had algorithms where you'd like type in all of your interests and it would like spit out what what it thought as a piece of software that you would um that you should do as as a career and i think i can't remember what it told me but it thought it told me that i should be a zookeeper or something so it was it was complete nonsense and luckily i kind of ignored that and took took the the product design route mm-hmm. um and then that took me to brunel university very early where I, where I studied for, uh, for four years and its namesake Isambard Kingdom Brunel was a, a civil engineer in, in the UK during the industrial revolution. And then he built a lot of the, 
the early railways and the viaducts and the bridges uh, in the UK. So as a result, there was the inspiration for the way that university sort of um, governed design was, uh, it was very technically focused and very engineering driven. So um, there was still quite a, a strong element of, of technicality and, and, and maths involved in that study, but still on balance, it had a lot of design process. You know, we had a lot of sketching classes uh, and that kind of thing, thing. So it was still balanced with the, the kind of creative side of design um, quite nicely. Then did an internship down on the South Coast in Devon. And that was very, like, I basically did one thing and one thing only for an entire year and that was CAD and design for manufacture. And I just remember my head uh, spinning with CAD. I'd never done that much CAD in my life. And it was, I, would, I was dreaming about CAD. Um, <laughs> so uh, that kind of lasted for a few months and made me, drove me a little bit insane. And then, um, got to the end, finished my, Brunel, uh, my, my degree at Brunel, and then decided I wanted to work in London. That was the only place that I wanted to be. It was where all the best consultancies were. Um, and that's where I thought I could really cut my teeth on some really great pro projects. Um, and I started a company called Pearson Matthews, which is a very medically focused design agency. Did a lot of like blood glucose monitoring systems, um, as well as you know, many other kind of medical devices. So that was again still kind of very technically focused and mm -hmm. and uh, cost constrained and not very driven by experience. And I knew at that point I was like, like this is this is cool and everything. I'm building stuff and I'm I'm making think turning something from nothing into something, which I found very satisfying. But I was kind of missing this element of the creative and or the the experience side of things and really starting with the experience. And then having that drive all of the, the technicalities and, and actually making things real and taking it to production. Um, so then I started freelancing, went to Tangerine, um, worked on a lot of like vacuum cleaners and uh, mobile phones for companies like LG and Samsung. Um, that was cool. That was probably my, like my first taste of consumer electronics design, um, which I think deep down was something that I was always interested in. I always found the consumer electronics magical in the sense that they were sort of very simple and intuitive on the outside, but they were doing these incredible things where you just had no idea really how they were working. So that was a really great thing for me to really kind of get stuck into. Um, then I worked in at Pearson Lloyd and a company called Factory Design where we did a lot of aircraft interiors which was a huge departure from anything that I'd done previously and, and a very sort of spatial design pursuit. So that was a lot of stuff around, you know, how do you optimize passenger real estate, but still maintain, you know, a good enough level of, of an experience, you know, like a first or a business class sort of interior. Uh, and then I spent four years at a company called Therefore doing Samsonite luggage. They were a great company, like really great team of people who um, allowed me the space to really grow as a designer and kind of find my own style and, and, and own, own approach. Um, but at the same time, worked with some really smart people, did some really cool product, product, products, which were pretty you know, highly visible, like the TomTom Tom devices and the, the TomTom um, smart GPS sports watches and stuff like that. 
And then at that point, my wife and I kind of felt like we needed a change from London. London was great, um, but we sort of thought we needed a bit of a change. Where would that be from like a career and a life point of view? Mm-hmm. And at the time, my wife was working at IDEO in London and she got a, an offer to move out to the Bay. So mm-hmm. very, very quickly um, from kind of initially thinking about that, we, we made the move. And I, I came out prior to the move and interviewed a number of places, Fuse being one of them. Um, and interview went well. I thought, you know, that wasn't a done deal necessarily, but it was... Uh, I enjoy, I like the people and I really love the, 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 the projects that Fuse worked on. And then when I got back to the UK, they gave me a call and, and offered me the job and were willing to, to wait the, I think it was something like three months that it was mm-hmm. would take for me to kind of pack up all our stuff and tie up loose ends back in London and, and make the move out to the Bay. And, and then, yeah, seven years later, the, the rest is pretty much history. <laughs> that, that's pretty awesome. Um... Well, let's kind of go back because you you did tell us a lot of information. So just to kind of unpack it, um, you were in the medical industry. You did work for medical industry. You did work for luggages and suitcases and travel, you know, uh, soft goods and things like that. And uh, you worked at Tangerine, which is a pretty, you know, uh, prestigious place to work at because of the history behind it and Johnny Ive was working there at some point, I think, right? Yeah, um, yeah. and uh, and now you're working with Eves Bihar, a Fuse project, and you know the countless of amazing designers that have gone through the you know uh, uh, grounds of Fuse project. There's so many people that are doing amazing things that have currently working there and have worked there before. Um, I mean, is it pretty surreal? Um, for you to work with amazing people and then you're you kind of think like oh my god i'm working with someone like Yves bahar or for you is it just so normal like i just gotta get i just gotta go to work right yeah i, I mean I, I feel incredibly lucky to work with some amazing designers including eve um you know people uh, pay you know millions of dollars just to just you know to work with him and i i get paid to to work like like shoulder to shoulder with him so it's it is a it is an honor to to be able to do that um and i it reminds me of, of kind of how i felt when i worked at tangerine as well i um realized that you're not really the the caliber the caliber of designer you know doesn't you're not you're not sort of measured on the the company that you work for um and the, and the the reputation that it has it's really about the work that you do in the output and you know the saying goes that you're only you're only as good as your your last project That's right. um so there's you know I, I think i sure you know every time every now and then i pinch myself and say like wow how lucky am i um but you know you try not to think about that too much otherwise you just uh, you know you feel fill yourself with with um um, rabid anxiety, but it's it's really great. It's it's a really great experience with working with him, uh, with Eve especially, uh, yeah. and that's why I've been there for as long as I have. It's um, his his kind of vision and for, for projects, and also just you know connections within the industry and being able to bring in such incredible programs for us all to work on and, and build something 
from from scratch which and a lot of the projects are you know category defining firsts uh or they you know defining a category like entirely or, or redefining a category entirely um i think that's something that i really value in working there because i've worked at a lot of places in the past like, a, like the companies that i listed previously as well as some of the cool stuff you know we did a lot of um commoditized products like you know phones and you know decked phones which uh, you know who needs another one of those and mm-hmm. sure we did it because we were a design agency and you know companies who need things designing uh, will will come to design agencies to, de- to ask them to design it for them but uh it's kind of questionable whether or not there's there's a lot of value in that so every, every project that i work on i really need to feel like it's it's something that's gonna you know provide value to the world and not just be another thing that you're just throwing out there and is going to you know hit the landfill so let's let's talk about fuse project and your work there because as an outsider let's say i had no knowledge of design and if i looked at the brand fuse project and i looked at all the projects you, you guys worked on it almost seems like you guys are a corporation with your own brand and with mm-hmm. zero clients because from the outside, it almost looks like if you're going to come and hire Eves or you're going to come and hire Fuse Project, you have to be a part of their visual brand, right? So when I look at other agencies or other studios, they create work for a variety of clients and the work all looks very different. There is no unified mm-hmm. brand or visual brand. But with Fuse Project, you guys have a variety of clients, but there's a unification and Mm -hmm. that is really rare i I really love that i don't know how you guys pulled it off but um time and time again clients continue to come to you guys and say i want you guys to design this for us and if you know if i didn't know any better about design i could immediately be like oh this was designed this has you know the eves bahar fuse project brand the visual brand right um, if you didn't even slap, you know, and they're all different clients, they're all different logos, all different companies, and you can immediately tell who 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 designed it. Um, is that is that strategy? Um, because I think that's very intelligent. I wouldn't say. I, I think the visual style for for a lot of our projects are, you know, they're kind of born out of a a a similar approach in in how we look at, at a piece of product design you know there's no there's as much as we can there's no superfluous styling you know that we're we're kind of the opposite of car design you know it needs to be as as purest um you know manifestation of whatever project that we're working on that it can be but then you know every now it, it depends on what project it is but it, the whatever the the, the the style that we're applying to to a particular project it has to make sense you know it's like with the with the jawbone jam box the the patterns that we put on the on the front we're all about you know the communication of sound waves and stuff like that um so there was kind of a, a logic and kind of a meaning and a theme behind a lot of those kind of textures and, and maybe you're alluding to a lot of the textures that we we've historically used um on projects, but I don't think it's like a, a conscious thing. I think maybe it's born from, you know, Eve touches every single product 
in the studio is very, very like tightly connected to it. Um, it's not kind of, it's not, it's not everything is designed by a completely, well, things are designed by a completely different person, but it's all from a very, very high level kind of driven by E. Mm. Um, so that might be a reason for it. The other, but I think in general, um, the way that we approach design is we just want to do something which is kind of new and different. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we don't want to just do something which looks exactly like um, you know, a design which has come before it. You know, if we're doing like a smart camera or a smart log, we don't want it to look like every other smart log. We want it to be, right. a lot of the times these are category first. So we want it to look completely different. And I think there's a unification. The unification kind of comes from the fact that these are all things that haven't got a kind of a, a, a typology yet mm -hmm. from a, like a physical design point of view. Um, and so in that sense, they're kind of unified in, in the sense that they're these, these firsts, these um, things which can't be defined that anything by come, that came before it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get very excited um, when I look at the products that come out of, of your office. Um, I get very excited for our industry um, because I think, you know, like if you're a part of industrial design, you can get pretty bored because you, like you said, you see a lot of the same things happen over, over again. The, the, um, you know, the, the object, the form gets recycled, you know, the pill shaped, uh, you know, and um, it, it could get pretty boring. But when I look at what you guys are doing, it kind of just gets me excited again because there's a little bit of futuristic vision in some of the stuff that you guys do. Um, like when I look at the, when you guys redesigned the Kodak, you know, uh, camera, when you guys redesigned, um, you know, the uh, at home, you know, um, camera uh, security system with the, it was, I believe an object that was on the neck and it, it was magnetically on oh, top the, of it. The Hive cube. Uh, yeah. The Hive smart camera. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it literally like just with magnets, it moved and, um, I mean, I can go on and on. There's just so many things that you're, you know, as a designer, but also just in general, as a person who gets very excited about movies and entertainment in the future, you know, you guys come out with the stuff and you're like, oh, that is really cool because it's different. It's something I haven't seen yet, right? Well, it's funny you mentioned movies because I, I've been trying to like rationalize in my head, like why why we do what we do. And like, if you think about the cultural impact that a really great movie has, let's say, you know, any Spielberg movie like Jurassic Park, for mm. instance, and, and that as a movie is a cultural, you know, icon and it's, it's stood the test of time. Um, and you just think how, like, what's the, what's the, um, uh, what does that mean for design? And like, how do, how do we, be as culturally impactful as that and it's really a combination of the the brand you know we're lucky to have a really great brand team at fuse project who we work a lot very very closely with on on projects like you know august and form life we worked very collaboratively collaboratively between those two disciplines to do that and it's a really a combination of brand and you know how how does the product design be an outward expression of that brand and really kind of support the brand itself, uh, that becomes something which becomes really, really exciting. Whereas opposed if you're just designing something 
it's the you know you're not that aware of like what the brand values are or you know any of those kinds of things it it loses a lot of its soul if you don't design it in the context of the brand there's no soul to that design um so yeah i guess that's how you could link it to you know how you how can you build more of a cultural impact for the industry yep let's talk about one of the most recent projects that was announced at the end of last year um mm -hmm. It was literally like, you know, Christmas uh, December when it was announced and it was exciting because it was the end of 2020. And I thought I was like, all right, well, I think I've seen, you know, we're done. <laughs> yeah, we're done with 2020. And then you guys dropped this awesome stuff, this uh, Vodafone Neo, uh, which is a connected device that has the power to give children a sense of growing independence while letting their parents stay in touch every step of the way. And uh, it is this awesome watch um and it's for kids and um i believe you were kind of like the lead behind this mm -hmm. and um this is an amazing device for those who are listening to this episode you guys should go check it out it's on the fuse project website um it is uh this very i know it's a children's device um and it, it looks very playful when i'm looking at it right now um, and I think the one thing that really sticks out to me and the one thing that I've heard a lot in the, in design communities and design forums and is, uh, the, the people were questioning why did Fuse Project decide to make the strap on an angle, uh, as opposed to centered. Um, and, um, I have an idea on why, as I'm looking through these photos, um, but, uh, it would be awesome if maybe you gave a little bit of maybe background context behind that. Yeah. Well, the, the angled face, and you can actually have it straight, by the way, there's a, there's an option to within the pack, you can, you have two different straps you have. It, mm. So as you can, uh, have the angled screen or you can just have a more more of a classic look to it but the <clears throat> the angled screen was really driven by uh the different functions that the watch can perform but also just wanted to afford a, a more of a, an ergonomic um location for the screen so you could more easily view it and it angles the screen close uh, towards the user's face and actually it enables you to more easily press the action button that we're calling it on the corner of the device mm -hmm. to perform tasks like taking photos with the um, the high resolution camera that it has built into it. Um, and you can use that same button to both record and send voice messages to your parent. This is actually connected to a, a parent app um, because it's Vodafone as a company, they're a, you know, a, a cell network provider. So it's all connected to the cloud. Um, and one of the real benefits is that you can um, connect with loved ones really, really easily. So it empowers the child to be able to go out and do what they want to do, but still have the ability to contact their parents really, really easily. And in the same way, you know, the parent, you know, has the peace of mind that when their kid goes out, they've got that watch and they've got the ability to contact them, you know, if they need help or if something goes wrong. Uh, and in a real dire scenario, if they just really need to contact their parent, let them know where they are, send them a GPS tag, 
uh, they can just press and hold that button really, really easily to uh, be able to send them a message. So that's really the reason the angle screen. It's it's pretty, you know, it's a, it's a simple concept. Um, we think it makes it look super unique compared to all of the other watches which are out there in the market. And you know, it's it, it, it really gives it kind of an iconic identity as well. And something which they can build on as an identity as they start to release more uh, and more of their smart home products. Um, we actually started working with those guys back at Hive. They, they were and with the, the camera and the thermostat and, and some of their, their sort of key leadership sort of moved from Hive and, and went to Vodafone. And um, that's kind of how we sort of maintained and built that relationship and designed more products for those, those individuals. So it's, it's a really great relationship that we've had over the course of maybe uh, six or seven years. So it's great. Yeah, I love this watch for so many reasons. Um, you know, a, for a real long time, when I think of watches, you know, you think of the just classic watch, the non-digital watches, right? And um, I used to have a Swatch watch. Um, so, and I thought that was really cool. I was in high school when I got my first Swatch and uh, thought it was awesome. And then it died, I think five years later and I never replaced the battery and it just sat. And, I'm, and I just, I think for like 10 years, I never had a watch again because I was like, yeah. why do I need a watch? Then Apple comes around, designs, you know, actually before Apple, I had a blue jawbone, um, you know, uh, uh, what was it? Oh, the, tracker. Uh, yep. 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 I had the, the, I had the, I was, I fell in love with that because it was small. It wasn't a watch. It wasn't clunky. And mm -hmm. it, it was like, well, this is when wearables was blowing up. And um, so I had, I think three versions of the up and um, I loved it. And it was the only thing that uh, that was in my wrist, um, you know, and then kind of up and the Jawbone brand kind of phased out and then other wearable people, uh, companies came in into the space and then, you know, the Apple watch came out and et cetera. And I was like, do I really need a watch? Do I need something on my wrist? You know, because I think when you think of uh, the human body, like real estate, companies are going to find places to create opportunities for products. And, you know, the whole wearable thing kind of blew up and um, yeah, I, I got, a, I got an Apple watch and um, it's been the only thing on my wrist Same. and uh, a bunch of, you know, you have Google, you have Fitbit and all these companies started making watches. And as a designer, you're just like, I, I, like, how, how are you, what are you doing that's different? What are you doing that attracts someone who already has an Apple Watch to jump ship to another? You know, like, it, you know, you're just kind of sitting back and a lot of this is just iterations, iterations. And, um, you know, uh, there isn't anything for kids. Um, and uh, I think there is, I, I, I know I saw something like years ago, a couple years ago where they, uh, there's watches for kids. Um, I've also seen like watches for kids, but like more for like toys, right? Mm -hmm. And more for um, things like that. But this is truly the first kind of watch um, that looks very contemporary. It looks amazing on the child. I mean, you guys should really check this out because I love how it's like really clunky um, <laughs> uh, because that tells me a lot yeah. about 
yeah it, it's um it, it's it's in, intentionally durable uh, mm-hmm. for, for the kids wrist for sure um yeah. and i like that you you say that it's it's playful um mm-hmm. obviously because it's a kids watch uh, and we intended it to be playful but you know we didn't want it to look like a uh, a toy necessarily or something that's designed by you know fisher price for instance right. uh we didn't we didn't want it to look at it to have that kind of uh, mm-hmm. um a look and a feel and yeah the it's a lot of the the size is kind of driven for the need for it to be as as durable for for the child as possible because they you know they're going to put it through its paces they're not gonna they're not gonna um you know have have any liberties with it they're gonna really put it through its yeah smack it on tables and drop it throw it around um so that's a part of the driver for that so my question for you guys is for the designers that were on the team do any of you guys have kids um and when you're designing for a demographic like this do you have to kind of put yourself in their shoes right yeah absolutely i mean i don't have kids myself but uh, a lot of the people on the team do um and we also you know before we even put pen to paper and started designing we were we were interviewing kids and trying to understand what their kind of needs and preferences were um and this is a watch for four to 11 year olds so it's quite a, a large age range and we realized that people kids evolve over time and their tastes and their preferences um are different so we needed to build in some kind of level of customization that being the strap from a like a, a physical point of view you're able to easily swap the strap in and out and put different strap colors on there um then another part of that is the UI design and and Vodafone's partnered with with Disney to be in it, to be able to enable that. So you can change your screen avatars. You know, maybe you're four years old and you're you're really into Elsa with Frozen or Minnie Mouse or that kind of thing, and then you get to you know eight years old and you're like, you know what, I kind of want to have Darth Vader on there or Buzz Lightyear or something like that. So you can change your screen avatars and have your, your straps match to that. So there's a, a nice customization element to it as well. Or baby Yoda. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, this this is awesome. And, um, you know, again, for those who are listening, check it out. It's on the Fuse Project website. It is pretty sweet. Um, what I want to talk about next is sustainability. And you mm-hmm. guys, your commitment to sustainability, because um, most you know, in 2020, most recently, again, about a month and a half ago, you guys dropped another project, the Ocean Cleanup Sunglasses. And this isn't mm-hmm. a space where you guys, you guys are not new to the space. You guys have done things in the past uh, to design products for the environment, um, to utilize, um, you know, material, discarded material, and you upcycle them into book bags. And, um, you know, that's... Uh, Another, I think, really big thing that I really respect and really appreciate about kind of Fuse Project and, and your commitment to, you know, environment, the, the environment and sustainability. Um, you guys mm-hmm. have also done, you know, I think it was like the uh, living homes and then you guys did uh, uh, a lot of things I can pull up here. Um, I mean, even the underwater scientific research station, just thinking about the future, 
right? I mean, it's just sustainability, you know, let's talk about these sunglasses. Um, yeah. Because it really tells me a lot about um, your vision and your belief in, in, in the world and the climate, something that really is affecting yeah. us right now. It was, a, it was a unique project because typically when companies talk about sustainability, it's usually within the context of a, a product which is on a, on a development cycle already. And they come to you or come to you and be like, oh, we, we, we need, a, you know, for, for point's sake, like a new smartphone, but we want it to be like as sustainable as possible. Mm. Like the stuff that you can do um, when you're within that cycle, it's like so limited. You're basically constrained to um, the institutionalized materials that are available to you as a designer, which are, you know, available freely, but they're still not sustainable. Sure, you can... You can have you can sort of bioplastics or recycle plastics, um, but there are very very limited numbers of them, and also a lot of the the properties that you need for those materials to be able to actually like integrate into these products just aren't strong enough. So it's it's a huge ongoing challenge, and and those um, who really want to do true sustainability have to make that you know a separate track and and not designing not while you're actually designing something and taking it to market it needs to be okay how do we how do we change what we're doing as a business to make ourselves more sustainable mm-hmm. um and also how just operationally we can we can change to make that happen so it's really important to think strategically uh in the first instance before you get really tactical uh on those kinds of projects but f- as far as the glasses are concerned um this was really interesting because they were bringing a material, this new material to us, you know, it was ocean bound plastic or ocean bound or ocean bound plastics. And the, the founder, uh, Boyan Slat, um, came to us and he sort of highlighted the, the huge problem, which is this great Pacific garbage patch, which is in the middle of the Pacific. Um, it's twice the size of, of Texas. Um, and we were just, we asked the question like, what are we doing with all that waste? Uh, what is the impact on wildlife, killing ecosystems, you know, and indirectly, you know, that indirectly support our own environment um, and all of the microplastics, which are then, you know, pr- becoming present in our drinking water and we're slowly killing, killing the earth as a result of that. And he found a way of, of harnessing the materials, uh, the waste materials, which is in that garbage patch, which was a huge endeavor because it's a thousand miles away from any land so just getting to it in the first place was a a huge undertaking and then and then getting it back to shore um and then finding a way of processing it and finding partners for him to actually process all of that raw material into something which is actually usable as a uh, to be used in, in an industrialized product so that in itself was a huge strategic sustainability exercise you know, how can we how can we even just harness this, this, this excess of material to be to make it useful again um, and that's where we came uh, with with the sunglasses it's uh, you know it's it's a simple we're starting with a really simple product but it's it's a classic style and um, it's all completely disassemblable and the thing that I really like about it is um, the kind of inherent look of the material and how 
the kind of the grain of, of the recycled ocean plastic itself kind of creates that really inherent beautiful look about it. And I think, you know, there's a saying, one man's junk is another man's treasure. And I think that's something we should be looking through a lens of in everything that we do in design. And, you know, how can we turn something which is perceived as dirty and actually like transform it into something which is really desirable. Uh, and we just, we need to be doing a lot more of that just from the point of view of making, reducing the gap between um, products which are, you know, the most renewable and the most reusable, we need to be closing that gap and making things as renewable and as reusable as possible. It's a huge, you know, it's something which is far in the future, uh, not, not far, far, but you know, it, it could happen soon, I think, with a little bit of optimism and a little bit of, you know, uh, grunt work. Um, but that's really the goal that we want to be achieving, not just in the ocean, the, the ocean cleanup sunglasses, but working with people who are kind of similarly, similarly minded and want to make a difference in that way. Yeah, I think what the one thing that I, I really like about this project and reminds me that people should start investing in purpose versus a brand, right? Because mm -hmm. this here has purpose, right? Like this is world changing. Like you said, you're taking something that really affects all of us and will affect our children and our grandchildren. We don't do something about it now. And you're um, really transforming it into an object that we can actually use on an everyday basis, um, at least in California, because California is always sunny. Um, but, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> but um, you know, instead of you being so loyal to a brand like Ray-Bans or any other sunglasses, not that, that, that you shouldn't, but if, if they are not doing anything that isn't purposeful, that isn't really changing, you know, um, their you know, outlook on environment, then maybe you should start really investing your money into something that does. Yeah. And I think I read a study recently where half of Americans are actually, they wouldn't be interested in supporting a company or buying from a company if they knew that they weren't sustainable. Um, but actually, you know, a, a bulk of a lot of the biggest producers and, you know, the big brands in the US, like very, very well-known family names, Yep. they're not sustainable in in any way whatsoever um and there's not enough leg legislation to kind of make a significant change on that so it's probably our jobs as designers to to start lobbying the to you know make instill that kind of you know institutional change within the industry and just within you know business in, in general to to try and reverse the effects of climate change and the the, the environmental effects that it's having on us as humans yeah, who said design isn't political, right? It definitely is yeah. because you, you oh, yeah, have yeah. to really fight. Yep. Um, this is, yeah, this is fantastic. Um, I would love to hear, and we can kind of start wrapping this conversation up, but I would love to hear what are your thoughts on sustainability being kind of like a buzzword? Uh, I feel like companies right now are really using it for a lot of PR and marketing. Um, but then there's actual companies that are actually investing and actually changing their whole, you know, logistics to really make sure that they are being sustainable and they are honoring um, these these changes. Um, but I, I feel like 
you know, we live, you know, in the United States, the capitalist, you know, democracy, and people are always going to be profit over, you know, doing the right thing. And that's very unfortunate. What is it, like you said, maybe it begins from within, because you do have to fight for that legislation. And hopefully with this new administration that just came in, literally yesterday, there is, you know, hope that we can really make this a mandatory thing. Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't know how many billions in funding the new administration are uh, are going to be, you know, um, funding it. I think it's like 20, sort of 20 or 22 billion or something that they're putting towards sustainability. And that's great. You know, that's going to, that's going to open up new, new interesting research into new ways of doing things. And that in turn is going to eventually trickle down to us as the designers to help kind of make that a reality. So I think we see that as a huge um, opportunity in the, in the very near term that we can, we can work with governments with um you know ngos and you know basically anybody who has a sustainability focus sustainability focus and there's going to be more and more of them as, as time goes on um it's going to be some a, a really big topic but i agree that some people hang their hat on sustainability more so than they perhaps should some some for sure like they're, they're making changes but when you think about how big organizations uh you know so slow moving and and it takes a long time to to change a culture of an organization thousands and thousands of people and to have that trickle um and percolate through all of the different business business functions but if they're starting to do it then that's just a step in the right direction um how they market that well you know if they're if they're attracting people based on the idea that they are a really sustainable sustainable business then they, they'll they're gonna have to deliver on that because the the you the consumer and the the user is is not is not dumb they'll they'll realize quickly that they're not being sustainable and and maybe sort of um ostracize that brand you know from their lives uh, if they're not delivering on that promise it's a very good uh it's a very good way to to put it and and it's it's unfortunate because i think we should also start doing this in education because it, it begins in education if you start to implement mm -hmm. some of these um ethics and some of these um kind of uh, insights on how the students just start thinking about this um yeah i don't I, a... I don't see it enough yeah it should be a a function in the same way as you know, design for manufacture is an element of design and a, a part of the process. Sustainability should be a part of the process and a process within itself, a standalone thing. Um, and you're right, there's not enough emphasis on that in education. There's also you just, there's not enough emphasis on that in business as well. You know, sunglasses is one thing. It's, it's a great design and a great start to being able to reprocess all of these materials and stuff. But when you get into more complex products like you know watches or smartphones the actual enclosures that they're 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 designed around that's just one part of it sure you can recycle the case you could recycle the straps or you know, any of the plastic parts providing you right use the right material but what about the pcbs which have mm -hmm. toxic metals in them and 
all those components, which they're not going to get recycled. They're just going to eventually find their way back down into the earth and have, you know, poisonous metals and nitrates then seeping back in, into our drinking water. And that's a scary thing to me. You know, no one's really doing anything about that or investing in solutions to, uh, you know, the technical requirements of products. It'd be great if we, you know, went to a factory and they said, hey, we've, we've got this, this biodegradable PCB. Um, it's, you know, as soon as the user's done with it, it'll biodegrade, you know, and we're not going to have to worry about it or the impact on the environment it's going to have. Um, it just doesn't, it doesn't exist. And, and I haven't seen anybody um, make a great deal of headway with that. So if there's, you know, one takeaway, uh, that's a big issue, which us as designers uh, can influence, but it's not something that we can necessarily change ourselves. We've got to partner with everybody to be able to do that. All of I our, did. you know, production partners and, yeah yeah i did see um you know you you were talking about you know getting uh, these plastic particles in our drinking water or or you know uh getting into our rivers and then ending up into 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 our bodies right um mm -hmm. that i i did see a couple of um articles in the in the past couple of months about plastic components are being found in human organs um yeah and uh, microplastics are now being discovered you know being discovered in in when they're doing autopsies and things like that and, and that is really scary if that doesn't scare the shit out of people or doesn't scare you know local governments or companies like I think that's the, the panic button. That's when you start making changes and you start passing laws and legislation that, because, I mean, I honestly thought that the red flag for sustainability and climate change was when you saw photos and videos of polar bears and, you know, like you saw fish in, caught in plastic, you know, um, bags and things like that. And like, that was the panic button, right? Um, I don't know. I, I think honestly, yeah. Will, if I'm going to be honest, I think humans, their biggest flaw is that we're human and that sometimes we're just so stupid and we don't even see it. <laughs> we're going to be, yeah, I agree. It sort of scares the shit out of me. I think ooh, we're self-destructive and we're, <laughs> we're, we're not going to realize until it's too late to do something about it. And you're right, like the drinking water, it's not just, it's not just products that we've got to be worried about. It's everything that contains any kind yeah. of petrochemical, you know, cosmetics that we put on our faces, they, they're, they're full of, yeah. um, you know, everything that derives from oil. So everything that we're drinking is a, a tea of lots of different byproducts from us, basically, that kind of finds its way back into the system. And, and who knows what that's going to do with it due to us, but I guess we'll find out. <laughs> well, um, I have one more question to ask you, and we can kind of wrap this up. And yeah, let's um, end on a positive, a positive note. Yeah, let's end on a positive <laughs> note. Um, but before we, we end on a positive note, um, you know, uh, we have to bring up the pandemic, right? So COVID has been about, what, eight, 10 months old, mm -hmm. nine months old, I don't really know. Um, we've been working from home since March. And um, as a designer who works- we're gonna at, talk about something positive. <laughs> I'm getting there. As, as someone who works at FE's project, uh, you guys work for with some of the biggest brands in the world. 
I don't think we're going to be going into the office or things will be going back into, you know, our, our normal life. I don't think we're going to get that anytime soon. I think we're going to have a new reality and we're just going to adapt and it's, mm -hmm. things are just going to be new for us. Um, what does that mean for design? Because I think we covered this already in the beginning where you guys were, you, you said you were, you, you guys worked on, um, you know, uh, that at home exercise, um, you know, product. Um, but what does this mean for, for design? I feel like now there's more opportunity. People work from home, they have their offices. Um, there's more opportunity for products and services. And um, yeah, what is the future of design now that we've been hit with this pandemic? Well, it's definitely going to change the workplace. That's for sure. We don't know like to what extent, but you know, a year into the pandemic, you kind of you you look at the the vast offices that we used to work in and you think uh a company's gonna really want to pay that amount of rent on uh, on their office anymore given that yeah. there's not going to be that many people working there so you know i've seen a lot of companies kind of uh, downsize their workspaces over the course of the pandemic to be able to achieve that and then that's how do you adapt the space to accommodate the the essential in-person collaboration that, that we need because design you know is all about a collaboration and there's only so much that you can do online and on zoom and we've been we've been really lucky with the tools that we've had can you imagine if we were doing this like 10 years ago without zoom or without like miro we've been using like you would just be on phone calls all day and uh, i don't know like two phones in each like in each hand trying to figure out uh Jeez. like how to move forward but luckily we we've had the tools to be able to collaborate really effectively um a lot of the stuff we did with regard to whiteboarding when we were in the physical space there's now all now moved digital so and it's actually you know really effective you can have that across all of your devices your laptop your ipad your phone and it's you know, almost more accessible than than it was when it was actually in a in a one physical space that you couldn't right you know, access and you unless you stood right in front of it. Um, so yeah, I think the work, and then how does the workspace going to modify for those, for those in-person capital collaborations? A lot of the energy I think is lost from, from the collaboration that we used to have in person, you know, a lot of the kind of the, the, the disagreements and so even like the friction, you know, to try and like butt heads and, and, try to, to kind of come to an alignment and a resolution on what the right direction to go is in whereas mm. yeah you can have a little a little bit of that but um definitely not as much as in person but in terms of you know new markets which are going to open up as a result of the pandemic uh you know sanitizing products that's going to be a big thing for a while i think and and uh, how they manifest in different use cases, you know, whether you're in the car or whether you're at home or when you're just like walking your dog or on the go, um, how do you keep a good level of hand hygiene, that kind of thing? Um, yeah, I think I think that's going to grow grow exponentially. Um, yeah, and then other than that, it's it's hard to know necessarily. I think it's gonna, the, the pandemic, you know, isn't over. And I think over the next, the course of the next year, and hopefully the vaccine gets here as soon as we can, and we can all get to a life of relative normality. Mm -hmm. um, but I think even over the course of the next 
you know, six months to even a year, there's going to be interesting opportunities and things popping up that we might have never even, you know, considered previously. So it's exciting, exciting times um, to kind of put a little bit more of a positive spin on it on a, on a kind of a, a dark year, but yeah. um, you know, it's, I think the outlook is optimistic and, and I, I think it will, it will flourish. Absolutely. Um, well, Will, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about yourself, about your work. And um, honestly, this is, you know, cheers to an optimistic 2021. Yeah, here's cheers to that. Thanks, Hector. Really right. appreciate the time. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And for those who are listening, thank you so much. And we will see you in our next episode. So take care, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Let's continue this conversation on our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Discord. You can find us at Context with Advanced Design on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Context is produced by Advanced Design with editing and production by Betuel Benitez and music by Shaide from Pixabay.